0: perhaps even the majority of people and and many of our neighbors uh, that they see no difference between what we are doing here this morning and a living museum. I don't know if you young people, children know about living museums, they're really a lot of fun. Um, There's one we've been to in Wales a couple of times and it's laid out by centuries. And there's actually a farm, uh, a number of farms from... Maybe the fifteen or 1600s until the early part of the 20th century, and, and those are working farms to the degree that they, they have cattle, they uh, shear sheep, they milk, they have blacksmiths, they do all these things as they were done in that particular period of time. Now obviously, you can see the difference between a living museum farm and a working farm. a working farm a farmer's trying to make his living, trying to sustain himself by that farming operation, whereas the income from a living museum is is not from the farming, but from the uh, entertainment value or the educational value that's in it. Now, that's really what many people think that we're doing. We're a piece of Americana as we gather here this morning. We are way out of tune with the times. We are something to be wondered at, to be gawked at, or to be mocked, and particularly, preaching. Preaching? In the 21st century, with all of the electronic media that we have, all the immediate types of interactive communication, why in the world would anybody preach or come and sit under preaching? In their minds, it is indeed foolishness. But the Bible teaches us that preaching is God's major medium. It is God's primary means of grace. And we must constantly fortify ourselves against the attacks on it. Plus, we need ourselves to understand exactly what's taking place in preaching. And That's what I want to do today. As we continue this little series in, in the nature of worship, and now we're getting into some of the elements of worship, is today to consider preaching as Paul teaches us about preaching here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We just finished a series in 1 Timothy, and there we noted that what are called the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul's final words of, uh, to the church. And there, these books bridge the gap between the apostolic age where there was immediate revelation, and the age of the church between the death of the apostles and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our marching orders are here. The pastoral epistles take that which was descriptive in epistles and in Acts and shows us exactly what is prescriptive for the church in the age in which we live. Now, it's all the more powerful when we realize that even as Paul writes here in the conclusion of our text that This is the end of his life. His his life has been poured out uh, for the gospel. He's passing the torch now to to Timothy and to the church, showing us what is most vital and what is most important for the church. And above all, he shows us then that preaching, in fact, is most vital, most important for the church. So from uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, It's my intention to show you that God has appointed the uh, solemn and urgent explanation and application of His Word for the gathering and perfecting of His people. God has appointed the solemn and urgent explanation and application, the proclamation of His Word for the gathering and perfecting of His people. We'll consider three things from these verses. We won't go through the verses in order, although we will open up each verse. We're going to look at the essential work of preaching, the extreme urgency of preaching, and the internal importance of preaching. Now, we'll go to verse 2 to consider the essential work of preaching, where Paul has this commandment, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Let me define preaching. Preaching is one of those things that it's got a broad range of kind of popular definitions, most of which are incorrect. We can define preaching like this. Preaching is the authoritative, public, proclamation of the word of God by a man whom God has appointed. Preaching is the authoritative, public proclamation of the word of God by a man whom God has appointed. Now, believe it or not, that definition comes out of this one little word, translated in our Bibles, this commandment, preach, preach. How can that be? Well, this is a word, like a number of other words in classical Greek language and culture, that through the... Greek translation of the Old Testament was prepared for a very special technical use in the New Testament. Uh, This word, a family of words, uh, preach, the message preached, the herald, the preacher, was used in ancient Greek cultures to describe the authoritative spokesman uh, for the gods. So that's why the people in Iconium called Paul Hermes, because he was the chief spokesman. Hermes, or Mercury, was the messenger of the gods. He was called the herald, the noun of this word, preach. Uh, Ambassadors who go out on behalf of kings would be called heralds, and they would bring these authoritative, publicly delivered messages, and the word is used that way uh, for public proclamations in the Old Testament, translated by our verb here, preach. And the proclamation of Jonah to Nineveh is translated by this word, preach. Thus, it ought not to surprise us when the ministry of John the Baptist is summarized by this word, he came preaching the gospel. The ministry of our Savior, again, he came preaching the kingdom of God. And all the apostles that went forth then, this is the word that most often described their public ministry, they were preaching the word of God. And so preaching is the authoritative public proclamation of the word of God by a man appointed by God. Notice as well, then, the content of preaching. It's not to be my opinions. It's not to be moral platitudes or political uh, issues. No, Paul says preach the word, which he's just defined in chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Here's Paul's theology of Scripture. The Bible, and as it would be completed then, would be this inspired book, the 66 books of the Bible, breathed out by God, through which God speaks to us with an accurate and true voice. That is what Paul means by the word when he says, preach the word. This preaching of the word entails both exposition and application. Exposition, preach the word. This brings us then to a method of preaching. That the Bible is to be the content of our preaching. And our primary purpose in preaching then is to unfold this message of the Bible, particularly as it comes to its climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we are to open up the Scriptures. Back in chapter 2 of Second Timothy, uh, Paul will say in verse 14, or write, Remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the Word of God. From the point of preparation, Searching, interpreting the scriptures, putting the sermon together, to deliver the sermon. The sermon is to divide, open up, and explain the word of God. So we could say the method of preaching is then to be textual. Textual preaching. That preaching that we seek to do here at Antioch is to take a passage of scripture and to unfold it for you as I'm seeking to do now and to explain to you in the first place what it means. But with that method also comes a strategy for preaching. And the strategy of preaching that was used in the ancient church, was used back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, used in the Reformation, was to preach through extended portions of Scripture. So it's consecutive textual preaching. The method, opening the text, applied now to going through an extended portion so I just finished this series on 1 Timothy. Pastor Groff's about to begin a series in Matthew. After I finish a few things on worship, I'll begin a series in Job. The method of textual development of, of the words of Scripture will be applied then to going week by week through an extended portion of Scripture. Now there'll be occasions for occasional sermons, ad hoc sermons. They also will be textual. But we'll break out of those series for various reasons. But that is the content. That is the method. That is the strategy of expounding the Word of God. But you notice from this text that preaching is more than explaining the Word of God. Paul then gives us these descriptions, these adverbs. He says that we are to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Here's how we're to preach we're to preach with application. Preaching must address the conscience. Preaching must address the will. Preaching must call for actions of response in the heart and in the behavior of the people of God. And you see then that without this, there is no preaching. It's but a lecture or a Bible study. Look carefully at the three words in verse 2. Reprove, to bring under conviction, uh, to bring... Force uh, to manifest the truth of what is being said. Rebuke, to admonish and call one to turn away either from improper thinking or improper behavior. And to exhort, which means to come alongside of and speak the necessary word. Put with these two, you would have admonition and you would have encouragement. Preaching is to do this. Preaching then must apply the word of God. Now, this is God's appointed means. When we hear critics say, but it is foolish, we say, amen, it's foolish. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And he does so that at the end of the day, all the glory belongs to him. Yes, there are more effective ways devised by men to communicate, but preaching is devised by God to do his work to his glory. So Paul goes on in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, notice, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When God works in your life, when God converted you through the folly of preaching, when God works in your life to to correct you and to encourage you through the foolishness of preaching, your faith is firmly settled in a great God who works as he has promised to work. So then when we preach in the manner that God has appointed, Christ himself is actually speaking with his voice through the voice of the preacher. Consider what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 14, and 15. After he gives this great gospel call but to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, how will they call on the Lord Jesus Christ? How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? Some of your Bibles translate at of whom. That is an improper translation. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? That's Christ. How will they hear that a preacher... How will they preach unless they are sent? You see how this works with our definition? Preaching is the public authoritative proclamation of the word of God by the man that God has appointed. This explanation and application of God's word, Christ is speaking with a living and powerful voice as long as what is being said in the sermon is consistent with the truth of scripture. That is the glory of preaching. And it is then by preaching that God brings His kingdom. It is by preaching that He gathers and perfects his elect. Preaching, supplemented with regular prayer, thus our prayer meetings and pastoral visitation and discipleship, is the means, the primary means by which God gathers and perfects is elect. You see, then, why it is so important to us, and why this method of explanation and application is so important to us, and why this strategy of preaching through books is so important to us, because we believe it is important to God. Now, it's also important because of its extreme urgency. We've seen the essential work of preaching. But Paul also speaks of this extreme urgency of preaching. Notice in verse 2, in between the commandment and the references to application, and by the way, on application, I left out with great patience and instruction. Application is not to be a harangue. It is to be done with great patience. In chapter 2, Paul uh, says that the lord's bondservant verse 24 must not be quarrelsome but kind to all able to teach patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps god may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will it's with patience it's with instruction the application must always come out of the word of god art has no innate spiritual authority but it, Also, we read here of the extreme urgency in verse 2 and 3 through 5. In verse 2, we see the urgency in its timeliness. He says, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, preach, Paul says, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. When you are well and strong, when you are weak and sick. When you are well received, when you are rejected. When God appears to bless it, and when there appears to be only rejection. You see, these two little simple words, in season, out of season, means regardless of the season, regardless of circumstances, we must be committed to preaching the word. You see this expression, urgency. We see it as well in verse 5 as he gets to the behavior of the preacher. You, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I want to move backwards here. Timothy had a ministry that was entrusted to him. This ministry was the office of evangelist. So when Paul says, do the work of an evangelist, he's not talking about evangelism. He's not talking about somebody that goes around doing evangelistic conferences. No, he's talking about a special office in the church. It was an apostolic office. Men like Timothy and and Luke and Titus and others had this office where they accompanied the apostles. They would remain behind organized churches and they would be sent to churches as Timothy was sent to Ephesus to uh, correct problems or to ordain further office bearers. So Timothy, at his ordination of which we uh, spoke in 1 Timothy, received this office from Christ of evangelist. With that office was a ministry that was entrusted to him. Some of you witnessed Pastor Groff's ordination a few weeks ago. Christ through the presbytery bestowed an office on him. But that office brings with it then the responsibility of ministry, to preach and to shepherd the flock of God, to be devoted to the scriptures and, and to prayer. Be faithful servant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, I, have a ministry to fulfill as part of our office of being pastor-teacher. Timothy had an office. Now, how was he to conduct himself in that office? Now, look at the first two parts of verse 5. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship. The word sober doesn't mean to be dull and morbid. No humor, no smile. It's a word that means to be watchful and careful. This word reminds us that God's office bearers are men involved in a battle. A battle with Satan. A battle with demons. A battle in which Satan is seeking to thwart the purposes of God. Sometimes in big ways. And sometimes I was thinking this morning, we have this electrical problem. What you see here is this one more little way that Satan wants to distract us from the significance of what we're here to do, to get me bothered by it, to get Zach bothered by it, to get you bothered by it. We're in a battle. And because we're in a battle, particularly we who are in the front lines of that battle, the pastor teachers, the the ruling elders, and deacons, must be sober. We must be watchful. Some of you have read about the Lewis Clark expedition when they were at an island off of St. Louis, just before they were to head up, I think the next day, uh, the Missouri River to go west. Uh, Lewis was at the capital of the province there in St. Louis. Clark was left on the island with the men of the expedition. When Lewis comes back the next morning, Clark informs him that two men on watch duty fell asleep. Now they're on an island, middle of a river outside of a city. what's the big deal? Lewis had them flogged. Do you know why he had them flogged? Because the next night they wouldn't be on an island off a civilized city. They'd be in a wilderness that had potential enemies that wanted to murder and, and steal. Thus, the men had to be taught the need to be sober, to be watchful. And this is how we must conduct ourselves. You see this element of urgency. And then to endure hardship. The Marines used to have a recruiting poster that I, I got one put up at the seminary in the early days. It was this big, burly drill sergeant looking down on a young recruit, shouting at him, we didn't promise you a rose garden. All we want is a few good men. That's what God is saying to the you men that want to be in the ministry. They want to be office bearers in the church? God wants men who will endure hardship because hardship is guaranteed. Didn't we just read that in chapter 3? If you're going to be righteous, you're going to suffer persecution. And the more you are in the front line in terms of public ministry, the more persecution you are going to experience. And we could be living on the eve of even more serious and profound persecution. Thus we must be willing to endure hardship for the sake of the ministry that's been entrusted to us. So the urgency is expressed both by the timeliness of it, by the manner of the worker. And now he gives the reason in verses 3 and 4, and that is the imminence of error. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and we'll turn away their ears from the truth, and we'll turn aside to myths, but you be sober. I have often am often asked, why does the church go liberal? You know, and of course, we can blame the seminaries, and they bear a great deal of guilt in this issue. But here I want you to see the old thing from a cartoon that my daddy loved called Pogo. We've seen the enemy, and it's us. We see here that one of the reasons the church goes liberal is because of restless hearers who are members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, possibly you as you sit here today. Paul had warned the Ephesians about this before, on his last visit there, he said that after I'm gone, that you're going to have wolves come, without to attack you but you're going to have false teachers rise up within and this just appeals now to the attitude notice the attitude that happens in the hearts of christians a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine we don't want these doctrines of sovereign grace preached we don't want the doctrine of sin preached we don't want you applying the word as you seek to probe our lives and our responses to god no, we want pleasant things. We want to have our ears tickled. We want to leave church always on an emotional high feeling good about ourselves. And so what do people do when they try to silence the preacher? I've shared with some of you about the lady that told me one time, I told you never again to preach on that subject. Well, she did leave the church, but... Um, you don't have that right. If You think error is being preached, you go to either the pastor or you go to the elders. But you probably don't have the right to suit to yourself, preaching to yourself, what you want to hear. We're in the position to search God's mind to know you as your pastors, and to come to you with what we believe you need to hear. Plus, we must preach the whole counsel of God. We can't pick and choose. Oh, it's very tempting. It's one of the reasons we have the strategy of going through books because it's very tempting uh, to avoid certain truths. You know, if I know that's going to upset Joe uh, and you know, Joe's a good giver or Joe's a good friend or whatever, uh, it, the temptation is to skip over it. But if it's next in the text and I skip over it, everybody's going to realize what's happened. He just showed favoritism to Joe. No, we must preach the whole counsel of God. We must apply it to all the needs of all of God's people. And if you don't want that, then you see what God does, He will allow you to accumulate for yourselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. You see what happens? I don't want to hear this particular thing preached on. I don't, and it's in the Bible but it makes me uncomfortable, or people aren't going to come if you preach that. So we part putting up strictures, walls, I don't want this prayer, I don't want that preached. But what's happened? God gives you over, and you continue till you fall away into error, heresy, and unbelief. Now this is the nature of the heart, yes, even of the regenerate, the remnant of sin that's within us, to push back and to... Get preaching to accommodate us. and So you see why it's so important then that the preacher preach the word in season out of season with rebuke and reproof and, and, and uh, exhortation that he fulfills his ministry. And he's willing to endure hardship. And you see the urgency of preaching. This is why we don't want to be up here boring you with the word of God. That's a great sin, isn't it? Make God's word boring. That's why there's an urgency. There must be an urgency in our preaching. But you know, that also applies to you. If preaching is this urgent thing, are you urgent about preaching? Do you make sure nothing gets in the way of your being at preaching? Oh, pastor, I was going to come, but uh, my relative showed up. Uh, I stayed home with them or I had a slight headache, and so, you know, I stayed in. I can guarantee you that Pastor Groff and I will at times be in this pulpit preaching when we'd have been very happy to have been at home in bed. We must, we must ourselves as a congregation understand this great importance of preaching, which brings us into its eternal importance. We've seen its essential work, We've seen his extreme urgency. Now we go to verse 1 for its eternal importance. I solemnly charge you. Look at verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. We've seen this uh, solemn admonition. It's something of a vow uh, in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, uh, 521 613 Paul uses it here also in chapter 2 verse 14 of 2 Timothy and it's bringing us in a solemn way with a solemn obligation before God The first thing he reminds us is is that when we preach we preach in the presence of God that I must not preach for your favor or accolades or for fame or anything else I must preach for God's approbation. As Jeremiah who said, But as for me, I've not hurried away from being a shepherd, nor am I long for the woeful day, but you yourself, he's addressing God, know that the utterance of my lips was in your presence. Paul, building on that, says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, We're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. Oh man, speak, preach in the sight of God. To Do so in Christ, in dependence and in in union with him. That's what this is all about. You see that we're going to give an answer. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and or even by his appearing in his kingdom. And he reminds us that our Savior, who now is enthroned on high as the glorified God-man, is coming again. When he comes again, he's coming not as Savior in the same way of his first appearing, but as judge. When he comes, we all are going to give an answer to him. Preachers, yes, but I want you to understand that you too Stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer. Hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Last week I mentioned to you kids about conditional promises. If you cleaned your room, your daddy would uh, take you out or give you a prize. How about this? Your daddy says I'm coming back in 30 minutes if your room's not clean you get a spanking. That's a motivation, isn't it as well? There's going to be an accounting for your activity. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to every one of you as you sit here I want you to understand that when Christ comes each of you individually is going to stand in his presence. You're going to give an answer for every sin Every sinful motivation, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action. Before this judge, you're going to give an answer. What's this response going to be? Because you're going to have to say, I'm guilty. He listed, I'm guilty. You know me through and out, I'm guilty. Then what happens? One of two things. God other says, Depart from me, I never knew you. He says, Come, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. And the difference is where you are this morning in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you repented of your sins? and Are you trusting in him for your salvation? Because if you've done so, you're then clothed in his righteousness. He says, Enter in. But if you right now sit here, Perhaps even angry, hardening your heart against the word of God, rejecting this beautiful and glorious offer of hope and salvation. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, that I could bring you there now. Oh, that now I could cause you to see something of the terror and awe of before the Holy God and saying, I'm guilty. And he cast you into hell. But while you have breath, while you yet have time, I plead with you that now you would repent of your sins and take hold of Christ Jesus. If you don't know what that means, then come speak to us. And We'll be glad to help you learn that way of the gospel. But of course, Paul speaking here principally about preachers also are going to give a special answer for the deeds that we've done in our ministry Paul reflects on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another's building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man rebuilds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There comes that day when our work as workmen, as watchmen on the wall, will be tested. If we're built by God's grace with good materials, we'll have something to offer to the Savior. If we have been shoddy and careless and compromising in our work, we won't lose our salvation. But we have nothing for the Savior. And so there's this is eternal importance. We preach in the sight of God. For his favor and for your well being. So I hope you've got a better grasp now about what preaching is all about. That it is the solemn and urgent explanation, application, proclamation of God's word by the man sent by God for the gathering and perfecting of his. This is why we are so committed to preaching, why in fact it is God's primary means of working as we read in Larger Catechism 155, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word. Notice that. Yes, read your Bibles. Yes, have family worship, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace, establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's what we're about. That's why it's so important. That's why we have two services in the Lord's Day, because we believe this is the primary way that Christ comes in the midst of his people. I hope you love preaching. I also hope you pray for the preachers and for yourself under preaching that God will work greatly in our midst here at Antioch. Let us pray. Okay. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.